Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, on a Friday show, it's the end of a long and uh, very newsworthy week, both here in Georgia and in Washington, D.C., and we're going to talk about news out of both of those uh, locations on the show today. Before we do, I, I just want to briefly say um, I mentioned yesterday that uh, last night uh, I had been asked and really honored by Greg Bluestein uh, uh, when he asked me to lead a conversation about his new book, Flipped, at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival. Um, we went up there last night. There were probably 400 people who'd come together to uh, see Greg and uh, all of our AJC partners on this show, Patricia Murphy, Kevin Riley, Tamar Hallerman, uh, uh, Greg, uh, were all there. But, but the reason I wanted to mention it to you all today is I cannot tell you how gratifying it was. The number of people who came up to me after Greg and I talked to uh, say how much they like Political Rewind. I'm really grateful to all of you, and it's wonderful um, now that we're getting a chance to get out a bit, uh, to have had the opportunity to see so many of you in person. So thank you so much to those of you who were there. And by the way, we recorded the conversation that Greg and I had about his book. And um, we'll at some point in the next couple of weeks, I think, uh, play it on Political Rewind because it's a really fascinating conversation about uh, the 2020 election in Georgia and how the state flipped. All right, let's Let's get right to our uh, show. Um, we're joined today by uh, Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnston Institute, Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm tired. Bluestein kept us all out late last night, but but uh, I'm doing well, and I'm very glad you're here. And and I'm also glad that we have Tammy Greer back with us. Tammy Greer, of course, a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. And I just learned, as we had a chance to chat, Tammy, before the show, that you and Andre Gillespie and I, obviously others in uh, who are political science uh, professors. You have a writing group that you work with together, yeah? Yes. We try. <laughs> what does that mean, Tammy? <laughs> it means that with the awesome responsibilities of educating our future leaders, sometimes that can um, take up some more space. Um, <laughs> when we need to write. <laughs> yeah, so we haven't done it we haven't done it in a while, but we'll get the gang back together. <laughs> yes. I, I love yes. that. I'd love to be a fly on the wall to uh, uh, hear what the conversations are like among all of you. Um, we seem to have Friday is a day uh, that we seem to have nothing but technical problems. Patricia Murphy is uh, with us, but we're working on making sure that she can join the show. But let's go ahead uh, because there's so much to talk about, and we'll bring Patricia into the conversation uh, as we work out the technical problems we're having with her. Um, so, Andra, let me uh, start with uh, the fact that tomorrow night uh, Donald Trump will be in Commerce, Georgia, to hold one of his patented mega rallies. Uh, we assume there's going to be a lot of people there. And he'll be uh, there to, uh, on the stage with him, although how much time they'll get, given that it's a Trump rally, remains to be seen. Will be now, I think it's up to eight people who are Repu in Republican primary contests against incumbents for the most part, not all of them. Um, but he has now created basically a Trump ticket, starting with David Perdue, obviously challenging Brian Kemp uh, for governor. Uh, he's got a lieutenant governor candidate. He's added to that list. He's endorsed uh, uh, Vernon Jones out in the 10th congressional district where there's not an incumbent uh, in that race. And now he's added a couple of people uh, who are really obscure in politics, but 
they uh, attracted Trump's attention because they're running against people associated with Brian Kemp. John Gordon, uh, a lawyer uh, running for attorney general against Chris Carr, who Trump is now saying refused to uh, help with the uh, the big lie about uh, Georgia's election being fraudulent. Um, and then a candidate for insurance commissioner against John King, another close ally of uh, Brian Kemp's. Uh, so, Andre, what do you make of all this? Well, two things. One, I am not surprised by some of these uh, obscure candidates or lesser known candidates that they would want to try to attach their star to uh, Donald Trump's coattails. This is going to get them a lot of earned media. They're going to hope to increase their name recognition um, and make their candidacies a little bit more viable. Um, I think the big question for Donald Trump is why are you taking these strategic moves right now? Um, This is a very high risk, high reward type of proposition. Um, And I'm not quite sure that he's thinking beyond who's loyal to me and I'm still mad at Brian Kemp. And so I think the big, it's not a wild card here. The issue that Trump is going to have to contend with is that Brian Kemp is very well, Brian Kemp is very well established in Georgia. He has a network and the candidates that he, uh, you know, has running with him uh, are people who also are, have names in their own rights and organizations. And so I think it's an open question about whether or not Donald Trump, by the sheer strength of his own name, is going to be able to carry unknown candidates over the line in a Republican primary. Um, yeah, Tammy, it is interesting. I mean, Kemp, or Trump has obviously endorsed candidates in any number of races across the country. Um, but he's really put all his money on Georgia. I, I don't think there's another state where he has essentially established a ticket of seven or eight, as I said, I think it's up to eight now, candidates who he's supporting. So when the primaries, when primary day comes along, May 24th and early May 25th, we're going to see that he put all of his money in the middle of the table, betting that he was going to have the muscle to get many of these people across the finish line. Right. And it appears that because of the the 2020 election and uh, the closeness of the presidential uh, race here in Georgia, um, that is almost, um, he is moving in a space of that he should have gotten those 12,000 votes in order to be successful, right? Uh, to go over that 11,780, if that's the exact number um, of those votes. Um, so I, he's doing it mostly, and as others have said uh, many times, about Donald Trump in his career, it is when he feels harmed, he has to come back um, viciously against those that he uh, think that harmed him. So this is what that looks like here. Um, it also creates the space from the Republican side of the ticket that the candidates that um, Donald Trump is encouraging people to primary against now appear to be more moderate in their politics um, as compared to uh, a Trumpian um, conservative Republican um, candidate that Donald Trump is endorsing. So that could um, very well, as Andre said, to benefit um, Brian Kemp and those that are uh, on the the Republican ballot uh, for the primaries. So it would be very interesting to see how Republican voters for the primary Uh, view this type of infighting um, and how they will react at the polls. So we do want to say that that I think the way to describe it would be that a number of the candidates he's endorsed uh, appear more moderate. Vernon Jones running in the 10th district was a Democrat who uh, attached himself to Donald Trump uh, uh, when his political fortune seemed to be flagging as a Democrat in the legislature. Uh, he certainly has bought into the big lie and attended rallies supporting the big lie. Uh, Burt Jones, running for lieutenant governor in his role in the state Senate, has advanced the notion that Georgia's elections were fraught with fraud. So not all of them are more moderate. But I do think it's a great point, Andra, that Brian Kemp, who— uh, uh, has has really supported and signed into law some very, very conservative measures like the bill that virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia. And yet, by comparison to David Perdue, who now wants to eliminate the state income tax, who believes that there should be further investigations of the Georgia election and whether fraud was involved, 
uh, who is against Rivian coming into Georgia. It, it is interesting that um, if Brian Kemp wins the primary, the question is whether there are voters out there who are swing voters who might suddenly see him as a moderate choice because they're not ready to go for the more liberal, they think, Stacey Abrams. You know, I think that that's a big question, and I expect that the Abrams campaign will do their level best to remind people that Brian Kemp is a conservative and that all you have to do is go back four years to remember that there the ideological matchup was between Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. Um, And Brian Kemp is no Casey Cagle, regardless of what Donald Trump says. Brian Kemp is not a rhino, regardless of what Donald Trump says. And so, I mean, I think this year is this lesson of just because Donald Trump says it doesn't mean that it's true. And just because he's taking a revenge strategy um, doesn't mean that that's actually a sound or a logical strategy to be using in these particular instances. And so I think that, uh, you know, there are going to be ways for people to remind folks about where the candidates stand ideologically and people still, you know, will have an opportunity to make their choices in in November, uh, depending on, you know, who wins the primaries. All right. Um, It'll be fascinating. I know that we're going to have, I think, uh, both Riley Bunch and Stephen Fowler of GPB's uh, news operation at this event in uh, Commerce, and uh, they'll be reporting on it. And it'll certainly be a big topic of conversation on the show on uh, Monday as well. Um, So let's move on. Um, uh, Tammy, let let me turn to... um, an issue that has caught a lot of attention this week in the state legislature. When the session was uh, getting set to start, when when the leadership was looking at measures that they thought were important this session, uh, Speaker of the House David Ralston uh, made it clear that from his point of view, the most important bill that they would address this year, the most uh, significant bill, would be an attempt to expand mental health services, make them more readily available to all Georgians. Georgia ranks near the bottom, if not at the bottom, in terms of mental health services in the state. It was a bipartisan measure in the House. In fact, uh, one of our longtime panelists, Mary Margaret Oliver, was a co-sponsor of the bill. Ralston turned to her uh, for her help on passing this bill. And it did pass by a large margin, bipartisan margin in the House. So here it comes to the Senate. And this week, no other way to describe it, a right-wing viral disinformation campaign is threatening to completely unwind the measure, although the supporters of the bill insist they still think it'll move forward. Um, Talk about this a little bit. It's very curious um, as to the opposition to expanding or extending health for uh, particularly when we look at um, how healthcare in rural areas have dwindled um, even before the pandemic um, and, and how those folks that are in rural areas will continue to have um, an, another um, access, uh, another uh, item for health care to be taken away, which are the voters for those particular um, groups and organizations, and even those politicians who may be waffling on this idea. Um, When we see um, uh, folks who have challenges with the way law enforcement sometimes have interactions with individuals who are having um, a mental health crisis at that moment, and how we see uh, a collective a collective hug almost around the need for additional mental health workers um, to help to reduce the stress on law enforcement. It's unclear as to the motivation and the end game as to why expanding or extending uh, mental health services to Georgians, why, um, why are we against that? It's unclear to me as to the motivation for it. Um, and then what is what is the reaction um, to continue to have laxing mental health care inside of Georgia? Well, and, and that's one of the things that's uh, really been distressing to watch is that let, let me lay out, Andra, just very briefly what HB 1013 really does do, the bill that passed the House and is now over in the Senate. It would require insurance companies to cover mental health care in the same way they cover physical health. 
It would establish state grants for outpatient treatment. It would loosen the guidance on when law enforcement can involuntarily commit someone in need of help, and it would take other steps to improve care. So that's the most basic uh, description of what the bill does. And yet, this disinformation campaign, as Maya Prabhu wrote in the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, it's being called the Pedophilia Protection Act, uh, guided by the World Health Organization and a measure that threatens to take away our guns. And that's just the beginning of the disinformation. And in a hearing in the, in the, in the Senate this past week, there was such a large crowd of people coming in to protest against this bill that uh, the uh, state, state uh, law enforcement had to come in and try to keep the crowd under control. Andra? Uh, that's really unfortunate, and I, and I think it ties to other issues uh, that I think we're going to discuss today where we're talking about disinformation and how that actually proliferates and metastasizes. Uh, you know, in, in this particular bill, the idea that we don't recognize that crime is actually sometimes related to mental health and that we need to provide help for people as we rehabilitate them in the criminal justice system, I think is a very important but missing link here in these types of discussions. So yes, if somebody is arrested for a sex crime, but we realize that they have an underlying mental health issue, we should be punishing the crime and making sure that we're helping people get mental health. Um, also, you know, we've seen encounters here in DeKalb County where we saw the police shoot somebody who was actually having a psychotic episode, right? That shouldn't happen here. But I think what's going on here is that uh, people so distrust other people and they distrust information from the other side and they disdain um, expertise uh, because they view it as elitist. And so they're viewing this bill in the same light and seeking to undermine the bill that way by uh, using misinformation. And sometimes I think it's also just uh, sometimes purposely, but sometimes it may be just, you know, people not really understanding and not actually seeking to understand a little bit more. And so there are all kinds of issues that are related there in terms of political posturing, but also in terms of how we value education and knowledge and dialogue across the aisle. Um, it is a group called Truth in Education, which has uh, made this a viral issue, uh, putting out uh, 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 emails, uh, texts, posts on social media and the like. Um, and here's just a little bit about what they say, Tammy. Um, they say that uh, typically that uh, a mental health law in some states can be turned into a red flag law. By that, they mean uh, that, uh, in fact, the state or a judge would have the power to say that someone's mental instability is a reason that they should not be allowed to have a gun. Uh, they say that um, the law would make pedophilia a, quote, mental disorder and absolve criminals from punishment, which is absolutely not true at all. Um, and yet this this group has really managed to stir up trouble. Uh, the uh, Maya Prabhu in her article talked to one of the people who came to the hearing, a, a man named Grant Meadows. He said, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. In other states, we've seen mental health laws turn into red flag laws, and it can be done arbitrarily, which, of course, it can't be done uh, arbitrarily. And um, Debbie Dooley, who was one of the founders of the first Tea Party movements in Georgia back gosh, now 10, 12, uh, now 12 or so years ago, uh, sent out a tweet saying, why did all but three GOP House members vote for HB for the bill, uh, the AKA Pedophilia Protection Act? Um, it's a bill, she said in her tweet, that will render catastrophic consequences and helps protect, again, pedophilia, uh, uh, protect pedophiles from serving jail time. Tammy, um, Anders right. We are going to have a theme, I guess, for a while now of talking about disinformation. And in a couple of minutes, we'll talk about it in respect to the Supreme Court uh, nominating hearing in the Judiciary Committee this week. But um, it, it is incredibly dispiriting, is it not, that when Anders says, you know, these are people who don't want to deal with fact, science, whatever, uh, they drive a conversation and whip up a frenzy uh, based on um, things that are made up of whole cloth. Well, all, all of what you said, Bill, has all of the themes, buzzwords, and phrases um, that are consistent with this type of um, element 
within um, with this ideology. So number one, uh, let's take truth in education. So to say, you know, we're being truthful here with you so you know. Um, and then having the educational portion, which again probably brings in the theory that shall not be named um, in type in these types of conversations. Um, then you have uh, the pedophilia component that is 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 live and well during the Supreme Court um, confirmation hearings. Um, it's also part of the element that these particular organizations fixate on when it comes to political figures overall, up to and including Pizzagate and so forth. Um, you also then have uh, the Second Amendment, uh, which um, they, again, these groups continue to hold uh, a, a that there is always a danger that those folks on the left, when they get into office, the first thing they're going to do is, is um, take away the Second Amendment. Uh, or, so it's interesting that what they've done is put a word salad together, right? It's almost like um, a word cloud. And they have all of these elements together um, in this notification so that they can um, ensure that the folks that are listening to them all of those particular elements, they can say yes to. And if they can say yes to, then they're winning the messaging war and then they can continue on to be in elected positions and or become pressure groups um, to put pressure on those folks. Patricia Murphy, I am so glad you are uh, with us. I apologize if we had a little trouble bringing you in. You, you, you're joining us in the middle of our conversation about the disinformation campaign, the viral campaign that has stirred up so much uh, anger among believers in the truth and education campaign around HB 1013, a bipartisan bill that Speaker Ralston has said is the most important thing he'll do this session. And I want to uh, uh, turn to something you wrote. You, you had a, I thought, just wonderful column. I guess it was in Wednesday's paper. Uh, and, and you address this, among other things. But the lead of your column was, once you jump down a rabbit hole, it's hard to climb back out. And that's where Georgia Republicans find themselves right now with the state government still in GP, GOP control, but extremism and misinformation inside the party threatening to change all that. And certainly the, uh, the campaign against uh, 1013 is an example of that, Patricia. Yeah, it really is. I have just been startled to watch this happen in the state Senate after the state House was able to pass this bill very quickly um, after, I should say, two years of work on it. So when it got ensnared in the state Senate, I reached out to a number of activists to talk to them and say, why are you opposing this? And they said um, they uh, don't trust the people bringing this bill forward. And they had been forwarded and provided with a huge amount of information that was just not accurate about the bill and what's in the bill. And I found really a cocktail of um, people who had been active um, opposing masks in schools, opposing COVID vaccines, um, people who don't trust the election apparatus in this country, just an electorate and a group of people ripe to be told something about uh, about this bill, about other parts of the government that should not be trusted, and to believe that. And so these activists uh, very sincerely believed that this bill would be forcing all kinds of government mandates on them, on their children, on their children's schools, and uh, they are they were just hot, red hot against this. And it is really a demonstration of the fact that when you don't fight misinformation immediately, when it happens constantly and consistently, um, which we've been seeing over the last two, four six years um, in this country, it will just fester. And so we have now a Republican Party in charge at the Capitol, but really hitting a serious speed bump here, not because of the content of the bill, but because of misinformation within their own ranks, um, forcing them to stop it and um, relook at it. And uh, I do think it'll pass, but this has been an example of what happens uh, when there's this kind of misinformation um, really becoming a kind of malignant within that party. I, I, I love the fact, really, that you said the, the Republican Party that's in, in control of government when, in fact, this, this split over so many things, this bill, Donald Trump, 
uh, it gives you reason to say just how in control are they really. Let, let's listen, though. David Ralston was asked to uh, talk about what's been happening on the Senate side, uh, and he had this to say. The situation we have is we have <laughs> external groups uh, that, for whatever reason, have waited now uh, two years through a— um, through the Mental Health Commission's uh, uh, hearing process, uh, who waited through the House process earlier this session and have now chosen in the final days to get engaged with some of the most uh, outrageous, preposterous uh, attacks that I've ever seen leveled against a piece of legislation. Look, this, this is a good bill. This bill gives many Georgians hope. Andra, it, it, this reminds me of what happened uh, a session before last it, when, uh, when the abortion bill came up. We recall that at the very start of the session and in the weeks before the session, uh, Speaker Ralston, Governor Kemp, uh, said they knew that abortion uh, restriction met legislation was probably headed their way. They both tried to head off the most extreme form of the measure, that being the so-called heartbeat bill, which bans abortions essentially after six weeks in Georgia. Um, and yet, and yet, their base rose up and put them in a position where they felt they had no choice but to go along, Andra. Um, you know, this goes to the question of uh, a party strength and personality politics. And so both are at play right now. So we're in an era where parties have historically been institutionally weak. And so that allows personality politics to kind of rule the day. Um, and so we see those strong personalities being able to aggregate a base of support, tap into latent voters, make them regular voters, and then make them a force to be reckoned with. Um, but there's also, you know, and there's a price that will will we'll have to be paid for this in the short term. There also needs to be said something about leadership and people standing up and saying, hey, wait a minute, that's excessive. That's wrong. That's crazy. That's wrong. And I don't care how many people you have behind me. I have facts behind me. And let me try to persuade you about what this looks like, not just at the immediate time, for, uh, you know, plus one in the future, but what at T plus five. And the other thing that I kind of want to say about this is that this is also a function of the polarized moment in which we live. And our polarization has gotten to the point where it's dangerous. Like if we were talking about this in an international context, we would be worried about genocide. So, you know, uh, Pew has looked at these numbers uh, for years where they asked Democrats and Republicans, what do you think about the opposite party? Are they well-intentioned people who just have ideas that are different from me? Or are these people dangerous? And there are substantial portions of people who think that people in the other party are dangerous. And it's getting to the point now where you're actually letting it cloud your judgment and allowing you to, uh, to, to filter out actually good information that you should be taking in. We're all going to have to look at ourselves and stop discounting people just because they are from the opposite party, because sometimes they know things that we don't know. I mean, in the same times where you discount people I actually had this uh, kind of happen to me as an aside at a funeral. Um, uh, somebody started talking to me about my colleague, Dorothy Brown's book on race and taxation, and then started to pontificate on taxes. And I was like, did you read the book? And my relative had to be like, no. And I was like, go read the book, like before you start talking to me about things. Yeah. And so people don't respect and value expertise. So I'm not going to try to wire my house because I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to burn it down. <laughs> right. So when other people have actually spent the time and done the work to actually sort of point out why you should wear a mask in certain contexts or why you need the vaccine. Right. Because they're medical doctors and they know this. Right. We shouldn't be challenging them. But yet we feel that we can. And, and sometimes that's pride. And we need to kind of, you know, go against that. It's good. It's going to harm us. Patricia, before we get to a break, let me get, give you a last word. You know, Andra's example of this, she's not going to be the electrician in her own house. My example of that is in terms of all the education bills in which the state wants to decide how teachers should teach is, you know, uh, if I went to a dentist with my child and the dentist said we ought to fill that cavity, I said, well, you know, doctor, I... I can look at that, too. I don't think it needs filling. There's a lot of that going around with legislation this session. There is a lot of that going around. Um, the key difference is that people do have a right to weigh in on legislation that's being 
pass that will affect them. And people do have a right and really an obligation, I think, to participate in their society and to vote in elections and to be informed voters. I think the real dangerous place we are right now is that so much of that information is wrong. Mm-hmm. Information that people are finding on the internet that um, that reinforces some of their own political uh, thinking and reinforces some of their own distrust of government intensifies that. And so I think it is wonderful and people should be engaged and should mm-hmm. become experts and and uh, really dig into what's happening down at the Capitol. Um, but unfortunately, the information that they're being sent, sometimes maliciously and deliberately wrong, um, is really clouding the debate and um, making these debates very, very difficult. Okay, let's get to our first break of the show. A lot more to talk about when we come back on today's Political Rewind. Andre Gillespie, Tammy Greer, and Patricia Murphy uh, join us for today's show. Patricia, because I didn't get a chance to introduce you more formally at the top of the show, I think everybody knows you're a political reporter and write the Political Insider column for the AJC, which appears on Wednesday and Sundays in the newspaper, and you oversee the jolt, which is the best way to catch up on lots of fascinating news about politics. You have a column uh, for Sunday. Give us a quick preview. I do. I am actually uh, looking at the closure, the decision to move Aunt Fanny's cabin in Smyrna. And uh, even though the cabin is moving, I think it has lessons that should not be forgotten and should not be discarded um, along with the cabin. Oh, I'm glad you're writing about that. Um, That's that's I had the misfortune of when I first came to Georgia in 1983, having someone take me to Aunt Fanny's cabin. I had no idea what I was getting into, and I regret to this day. I still have images of what a horrible, horrible uh, place it was. Um, Patricia, let's move on. Um, I want to talk about the the confirmation hearings for a little while. And I I want to read, um, because we've been talking about disinformation And we've been talking about Republicans uh, essentially, as both Andra and Tammy said, kind of creating these word salads were the word that Tammy was the words that Tammy used for how they're weaving in their overall political messages into proceedings that have nothing to do with those messages. Supreme Court hearing a great example of that. And here's what Carl Hall said in an analysis of the hearings in uh, today's New York Times. Patricia, he said the Republican manhandling of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson this week was convincing evidence that the Senate Supreme Court confirmation process is irredeemably broken. The aggressively hostile interrogation featuring political dog whistling and relentless relitigating of Supreme Court feuds of the past marred what could have been not only a reset for the Senate, but a significant national moment in seeing the first black woman ascend to the pinnacle of American jurisprudence with strong support. Patricia? So for Carl Hulse to write that to me is really notable because he is just one of the foremost experts and a real institutionalist um, for Congress. So to read, to hear him say that, uh, people should pay attention to that because I think what he's saying here is that Supreme Court hearings, which are a crucial role of the Senate to offer their advice and consent on nominations to the Supreme Court, um, they've become really just an audition for national office. They've become performance art, and they have so little to do with the substance of either who um, the judge is or uh, what she believes or how she might uh, rule from the bench. Um, It has really provided very little information that would be useful, I think, to voters evaluating the situation and has really just become purely political, um, again, performance art. Um, I think that uh, for um, Judge uh, Brown, she has really equipped herself beautifully. I think that she has shown uh, with the way that she has weathered the storm, uh, really unflappable. Um, she's really revealed, I think, her character and revealed her uh, her future on the bench, that she will be unflappable, that she will not uh, kind of fall into um, tropes, will not fall into stereotypes, will evaluate the situation and really uh, stand professionally as she has so far. So I think it, if it's provided anything useful, 
that's been what we've been able to see. Patricia, just one more question before I ask Tammy and Andre to weigh in. You and I, you worked in the Senate for quite a while. You know the institution pretty well. I covered any number of Supreme Court justice nomination hearings uh, up there, including uh, the Clarence Thomas hearing, which devolved into a, 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 a what many people thought was an unfortunate spectacle, maybe for good reason. Um, and, and and I used to walk into those hearing rooms just kind of filled with awe that this was the United States Senate, Patricia. They were doing consequential work. And for many of those hearings, they were conducted in a way that I, I think you could say brought a certain amount of pride to the members of the committee who were involved. That's not the case at all. And this hearing, particularly, as Carl Hulse points out, was just, just an awful spectacle to watch. I think the Judiciary Committee in particular has attracted um, senators like Ted Cruz, like Josh Hawley, who we know have national political ambitions. Um, Kamala Harris was on this committee as well. It is a perch to perform at this point. Uh, that has to be taken into account. We can't forget the Senate's McCarthy hearings. We can't forget that there have been other low moments in sports when it comes to the United States Senate. Um, some Frequently, the better work is done outside of the purview of the cameras. Um, but when you have mm -hmm. people running for president and using this as an opportunity to um, just push their own profile, there was an AP photo of Ted Cruz checking his own Twitter yeah. mentions after he um, questioned Judge Brown. Um, that is really all you need to know about uh, why why he was doing what he was doing. And I don't he certainly was not alone. Um, Andrea. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, assaults on on Judge Brown's record had to do with claims that she was soft on people who uh, uh, viewed uh, child pornography. They had it on their computers, whatever. She gave them lighter sentences than were recommended, and yet, and yet. Uh, a, a study of uh, the, the voting records of those senators, the Republicans who, who claim that she's done something out of the norm, uh, in fact approved the nomination of any number of federal judges who had issued similar sentences uh, to uh, 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 people with child pornography on their computers. And Ted Cruz, who went after her uh, because she supported critical race theory, uh, he said, uh, his children, it turns out, go to a private school where critical race theory is one of the real mainstays of the philosophy of the school. Okay, I just need to reiterate again, nobody is teaching a fifth grader, a seventh grader, a 10th grader about critical race theory. Nobody knows who Kimberly Crenshaw is. They don't know who Richard Delgado is. Like, you don't know what it is yet. You might know something about systemic racism, but you don't know critical race theory um, until you get to college or law school or graduate school. But that being said, the spectacle that we saw, which I think Patricia rightfully described as performance art, but we need to say is bad performance art. Like none of these people deserve like their sad cards behind this, right? Because it was terrible. It was bad. It was blatant. It was hypocritical. Um, it, it actually kind of reminded me of the things that we worry about in Russia. You know, so we worry about Russia kind of projecting, oh, the Ukrainians have chemical or biological weapons as they tell that they might be getting ready to use that. And that's exactly what they did on Monday. We're not going to treat you as badly as they treated Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh or Robert Bork, who like is dead and we shouldn't even be talking about because that happened when I was in middle school. Um, that or even elementary school, I can't remember if I was in the fifth or sixth grade when that happened and then proceeded to do the exact same thing. Right. Like just the display with Lindsey Graham on religion. I think what happened to Amy Coney Barrett with respect to her Bible study group was horrible. It shouldn't have happened. Diane Feinstein was wrong. But you don't go and play tit for tat and then like amp it up by throwing everything at the wall. You basically said that she abetted pedophilia, that she was a terrorist sympathizer, that she was some radical um, sort of like anti-white activist right, who doesn't understand what gender is, like anything that could have possibly said, oh, and then you tried to like throw factoids at her to kind of make her look stupid, right? Because she didn't necessarily like know every piece of trivia that some of these senators were putting at her. It was shameful. It was disgraceful. 
Um, I can't ignore the race and the gender element that's going on sort of here. And frankly, like I, I've seen bad behavior before. Watching that was triggering for me. And it was and it was sad. Like I felt for her. And I think a lot of people who have had horrible interview experiences kind of felt that as they were watching this interview. Tammy, it occurs to me that there are Republicans clearly who believe that what happened this week was payback for what they thought was the mistreatment of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, but but it's a false equivalency. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, um, th- a witness, came forward in, and gave sworn testimony to the committee uh, about the way in which she was treated, she says, by Kavanaugh when they were teenagers, when he uh, essentially assaulted he She said assaulted him. So... It, it her it so it is a false equivalency, um, but but Andra raised gender and race, so it would be a mistake not to do that here. As an African American woman, how did you see this? Do you think in an even more uh, piercing way, perhaps, than somebody like me, an old white guy, saw it? Um, I saw it like yeah, been there, done that. Um, every look every squirm, every uh, attempt to question my intelligence, um, every instance of the what they did, to Andre's point, what they did was the othering of if you are not a white heterosexual Christian male, then you are not American. And so every single item that was thrown at her was to to highlight in their eyes that she's not really American. Um, And they don't they have a different form of what patriotism is. And so see, look at all of these elements. She's not really American um, because she doesn't view America or patriotism the way that we do. Um, I had my classes to watch the hearings um, and I pause and explain stuff throughout. Um, and it was amazing that she literally, that Judge Brown Jackson gave civics lessons. And to say, hey, Senate, this is your responsibility. Hey, Congress, this is your responsibility. My role to stay in my lane is to do this. Um, and to, to continue to throw that off on you know her as a sitting judge at the time to say you attempted to circumvent and she continued to push back no but this is your responsibility the condescension that they provided to her um of course lindsey graham performance um ted cruz josh hawley um and even marsha blackburn it, it 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 is tragic that someone who has the most experience of any person to ever sit on the Supreme Court, this is how you would treat the most qualified individual. It is astonishing. And I hope that people take a step back and look at this and understand that any person who had this much qualifications, would they have been um, put through that experience um, if they were not a black woman? Uh, Patricia, a couple points before we get to our break. Number one, apparently her nomination should be approved, although it's kind of volatile at this moment, I think. But Democrats think they've got the votes to do it, especially if the vice president has to weigh in on on this nomination. Um, And the second thing is, are there long-term political consequences for Republicans in general election campaigns around the way they treated this African-American judge? Well, I think that the senators for whom there will be consequences um, are more likely to possibly support her. I think that we'll see um, somebody like Susan Collins, somebody like Lisa Murkowski. I think they're more than open to voting for her. Um, I'm not even going to take Lindsey Graham off the table. He tends to uh, do surprising things in Supreme Court hearings. So we'll see. Um, but we really are at the point that Andra mentioned, it's just such a polarized electorate that we have right now. There are different incentives for politicians at every level. And the incentives are on the fringes of their parties uh, to move closer to the fringes, to be uh, competitive 
in those primaries uh, to fend off a primary challenge rather than to look ahead to um, a general election or even uh, simply just broaden their uh, outlook and do the right thing, uh, represent most people in their state rather than most of the people who voted for them in their state. And so um, all of the incentives have really, in my view, become uh, disaligned, disaligned from good government. And I think that's what we're seeing here. I think some of those senators um, would uh, like to be less performative, would like to uh, simply move forward uh, rather than um, really give this woman the kind of treatment she in no way deserves. Uh, but the voters in, her, in their primaries are demanding something else right now. All right, let's get to our final break of the show and come back. We've got a few more items I'd really like to get to on today's Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta University, Andrew Gillespie of Emory University here uh, for the show uh, today. Um, Patricia, uh, you didn't get to be part of the conversation about Trump coming into commerce. And I want to at least ask you a quick question about it, because you've certainly been to a big Trump rally. You were at the big rally in northwest Georgia right before the runoff election, the Senate runoff election. Um, what, to, what do you expect to see out there? I don't know whether you're going to cover it yourself, uh, but, but what are we likely to see from Trump there? Is he even going to give anybody who's uh, supposed to be on the stage with him, those eight people he's endorsed, any time to talk at all? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. I will be in commerce. Yeah. I'll be there with some of my AJC colleagues. And I expect Donald Trump to come in guns blazing against Governor Brian Kemp. That's what all of this is about. So we will hear about Brian Kemp. We will hear about everything that Brian Kemp did that was wrong in the last election. We'll hear the same thing about Brad Raffensperger. And then I'm sure he will bring up his candidates one by one to introduce them. But he's also going to have Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he's going to have Andrew Clyde there as well. And so every candidate who has gotten involved in this effort is taking all of that on with their candidacies as well. Um, I don't know that he will say a whole lot about the other candidates. Um, he And these things, he tends to just go off on un unstoppable tangents about himself and his grievances. And so that's what I expect. I will be especially interested in Herschel Walker on stage and uh, whether he is photographed with somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who he has tried to distance himself from. I'll be trying to see if these candidates are just running straight into the Trump electorate or if they are trying to hold off and keep themselves electable in Georgia. We know right now it's very hard to win without Donald Trump in a Republican primary, but then with when with him in a general election. And we'll have to see how um, any of these candidates are able to navigate that. You know, Andra, when we were talking about Trump and his ticket basically here, um, at, and, and we talked about the fact that the stakes are high. He's endorsed this these eight candidates uh, in Georgia. Um, we didn't mention that he just uh, withdrew his endorsement for Mo Brooks for uh, the seat in the United States Senate over in Alabama. And there are some people who believe that he withdrew it for pretty flimsy reasons, uh, but that perhaps it had to do with the fact that Mo Brooks uh, standing in the polls seems to be disappearing. He's not doing particularly well. And this was a way for Trump to bail out on that endorsement. It'll be interesting to see if any of that happens here. If David Perdue continues to struggle in the polls and with fundraising, will Trump stick with him right through May 24th? So the first part of your question kind of goes back to this thing that I've brought up before about the empirical question about the causal effect of a Trump impact. And my hypothesis is, is that it does nothing. Yeah. Right. And so. Uh, him withdrawing Brooks, uh, his endorsement of Brooks, because Brooks is losing, I think, is evidence of the fact that Trump tries to pick winners. He's not actually picking for anything. But if there's anything that he does pick people for, it's because of loyalty, because it's all about himself. And so that might actually keep him doubling down on the people he's endorsed in Georgia, because here it's personal. And this is about relitigating the 2020 election, whether or not that actually makes sense or whether or not that strategically that sort of has a prob high probability of success in the future. So either way, I think people have to ask themselves. And I think this actually goes back to the previous discussion about our senators showing out, um, you know, on national television. 
stop electing narcissists, right? Like, you know, and, and we shouldn't be trying to like, you know, sort of cater our whims to these people who are very capricious and only doing it about themselves. So we are so bound up in picking people because they have the right letters behind our names. But no, now you're picking people who actually could do us harm, don't actually elevate the conversation in the long term, or then you put in people who will actually do the same thing or even worse. All right. Uh, thank you for that. We're running out of time, but Patricia, I don't want to miss a chance at the end of the show today to say that we are at the end of an extraordinary era in Georgia politics. Calvin Smyrie, been in the in the, the state legislature in the House for what more than four decades. He's going to move on. He was appointed as an ambassador by uh, uh, the president, and will soon have his confirmation hearings. Um, and, and I want to give you a chance, especially, to say a word or two about it. But I first want to play a clip. Donna Lowry at Lawmakers did a wonderful interview with Calvin, and she brought um, David Ralston in also. And at one point in the interview, she showed Calvin on an iPad what David Ralston had said about him. I want to play that. If you're listening on the radio and not watching this show, you're going to hear a long pause after Ralston finishes because Calvin is trying to compose himself. Let's listen. When I hear people talk about term limits, who could want a system that would deny you a Calvin Smyre? Not me. I'm, I'm very, very happy for him. And I often tell him, I said, you know, I know that there was a speaker here that served, you served with longer than me, but there's not been a speaker here that's loved you as much or relied on you as much as I have. Wow. I've had a long career, and um, I've had a lot of friendships along the way. And um, but I've been truly, truly blessed. So, Patricia, that's the way to end a show in which we've talked so much about the toxicity of today's current uh, politics. Um, Calvin Smyrie and David Ralston disagreed on many issues, but they had a respect and a love for each other, and they listened to each other and got things done. Yes? They got so many things done, and they got them done together. These are two men who grew up in the segregated South. Um, Calvin Smyrie was not able to rent his own apartment mm. when he uh, was, uh, just before he was coming to the state legislature because he was a black man in Columbus. And to see him rise to the level that he did, uh, to see him uh, chair the Democratic Caucus, chair the Democratic State Party, uh, he was a very close uh, right-hand man, if you will, to Governor Zell Miller. Um, he broke so many barriers, but he also made so many friends along the way. And David Ralston, uh, the Republican, is one of his closest friends. Uh, those two admire each other. And they also really set a tone and an example for the rest of the chamber that the rest of the chamber, I think, appreciates and follows and uses that as an example of something to aspire to. And I think that that will be um, one of his most enduring legacies um, in the Georgia legislature. I just, we're going to miss you, Calvin. We've loved, loved working with you, covering you over the years. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Tammy Greer, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much for a wonderful show today. As we leave you, I just want to thank the team who put this show together today. Sam Burmas-Dawes, Natalie Mendenhall, Jay Cook, Dennis Buchanan, Alex Word, Jeff Bonk, Aaron Rothwell, James Turner, Matthew Wolf, between our TV crew and our radio crew. Obviously, we can't do it without you. That's it for us for today. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you again next week on Political Rewind. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.